This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. Good Together listeners. I hope you've had a wonderful um, start to your week. And I am just so thrilled to get to today's episode because I really feel like the topic we're about to get into not only is so timely, but um, the perspective we're going to hear is so unique. So I, I'm so excited. Um, so today on the podcast, we have Deborah Landau, um, who is the Director of Ecological Management at the Nature Conservancy. Um, and she has a major passion for what we call restoration. And so through Deborah's work in the Maryland, D.C. chapter of the Nature Conservancy, she really works to make sure that natural communities are thriving and resilient, um, and goals are achieved through invasive species management, monitoring, and why we're talking about this, prescribed burns. So specifically, you know, actually, you know, burning uh, vegetation in order to um, better our environment. So we'll talk more about that in a second. Um, But Deborah is an engine boss and a firing boss, which I want to hear all about. So her main um, job in, in that job is to help plan, implement, and manage burns across a wide range of landscapes. Um, so Deborah, welcome. I wonder if you could just introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background um, as to you and your role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. Um, you did a pretty good intro. Essentially, the bulk of my work is is restoration ecology, so restoring our natural areas. Um, And that's a combination of looking backwards at what we used to have and looking forward, given, you know, today's climate, uh, different species compositions, and seeing how we can get these natural areas as healthy and resilient as we can. And um, and I've been doing this for uh, since 2021, uh, 2001. Okay. <laughs> so I'm pushing 22 years. Wow. So um, it's an extremely satisfying job. Um, and it's just terrific to work in our, our natural areas. And I really enjoy it. Yes. And, you know, I think, um, you know, so so many people, when, when they think about environmental t- careers, you know, they, they gravitate towards things that maybe are a little bit more obvious. And so for me... Um, you know, speaking to somebody who is, you know, in charge of, you know, restoration specifically, right? And 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 thinking about natural landscapes, you know, like you just mentioned, how they used to be and how, you know, they can really thrive in the future is so interesting. And really the reason, um, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today is because it is Women's History Month and we believe really strongly in, um, you know, shining a spotlight on women in environmental careers. Um, but another reason that we were excited to chat was, you know, 
the topic of, of our landscape literally burning around us is is just constantly on our minds, right? I mean, at the time of recording, um, it's it's March, and so we we are coming out of winter, and so haven't been hearing about wildfires and such as much. That being said, we're about to start getting into warmer weather, and I think people, especially our listeners, are going to be really honestly surprised, perhaps, to to think about planned burning of, um, of, uh, you know, of vegetation to, in order to preserve our natural surroundings. So I'm curious to know a little bit about like maybe how you became interested in utilizing fire, um, for this type of work, maybe in your, in your career. And then maybe we can just talk a little bit about like what the process is and sort of what it entails. Absolutely. So first, I'm just going to take one step backwards. Um, yeah, because absolutely. when we talk about putting fire on the ground, we're bringing fire back to the landscape. Fire is a natural process. It's always occurred. Yep. And for many millennia in North America and throughout the world, indigenous people have been setting fires to shape our natural communities. And it's often lost on us today what an incredibly solid grasp and understanding they had of the power of fire and and how enabled how 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 amazingly capable they were at using fire for so many different uh uses be it um crop management pest control clearing the areas they worked um hunting they so fire has always been with us yes. so what what i'm doing is i'm bringing fire back to the landscape because it's been actively removed. Um, and one of the most satisfying things about working with fire is when I'm doing restoration, I find time and again that bringing fire back to the landscape is one of our most powerful tools to really effectively restore a natural area and and bring it back to the resiliency and the health that it would have historically been. Absolutely. And you know, Deborah, I, I absolutely want to um, pause and talk about the very first point you made, which is, you know, thinking more about our indigenous uh, populations and how they, of course, have been a part of the landscape for far longer than, than um, you know, most uh, modern communities have been around. And you're right, they often don't get the credit they deserve for their ability to you know, have a thriving landscape around them, right? I'm curious to know too, like, as you have, have made a study of this space, um, you know, if there's any surprises really that have come up as you, you've dug into the, the history here. Well, initially, I was honestly surprised to learn how much of an influence they had and what um, what mastery they had over over fire. It's, it's very easy to just assume that all wildfires, past and present, were set by natural forces sure. such as lightning strikes. Um, and in, in many areas, that is the case, especially the southeast or maybe parts of Australia. But here where we are, say, I'm sitting on um, in the mid-Atlantic, um, we historically, most of our fires really were set by the indigenous people. And, um, and with that, they created this incredible mosaic of different ecosystems. They created these big open forests with lots of diversity, herbaceous diversity underneath with grasses and, and forbs and, and lots of different layers of, of plants. And, and with that diversity of plants came a diversity 
of insects, of animals, mm, yep. of different organisms. And that's really what we're working towards is, is coming back to that healthy, resilient, diverse landscape that they had shaped. But um, due to some pretty legitimate reasons, such as fear of fire and not wanting to burn down our our communities and our homes, uh, around the turn of the last century, uh, we put a stop to all wildfires. And and we said, you know, if there's a wildfire, we are going to put it out. There was even a rule uh, in the 30s that said that all wildfires must be put out by 10 a.m. the next day, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much of what we're doing now is trying to, to catch up to that kind of 100 years of lost fire and 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 bring these systems back to where they had been. Yeah, that was going to be one of, one of my follow up questions for you, which is, you know, I, I I'm pretty sure most of us are familiar why we we have stopped this, right? Like we don't want it to encroach on neighborhoods, and a lot of this is you know due to you know expansion of just general settlement of our land, et cetera. Um, and I'm also curious. So, so we kind of talked about like yeah, why why we've stopped it from a historic perspective. Um, but I'm also curious um, to know a little bit more about why, I don't know, like why we actually do need this process and why it can't be accomplished by another medium. Yeah, that's a really good question. So a lot of it, my answer is just going to be flat out. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> there's a lot that we do when we burn in which we don't completely understand the processes going on. Okay. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a wetland on the eastern shore of Maryland that when we purchased this wetland as part of a preserve, it had a pine plantation on it, just rows and rows of, of one single species of tree. Okay. And we got it, we had a drought year and we were able to go in with equipment and completely clear cut that area. Um, and after just the clear cut, just bringing more light to the ground, we had some really rare orchids uh, appear, which is really exciting. Um, but then the following year, we burned that area. Okay. And after the burn, we had an exponentially large number more of these these rare orchids, including one incredibly rare orchid that hadn't been seen on this site. In this state in 18 years. Wow. And when we went back and looked through the records, we found that that orchid had been on that same spot 18 years previously, right after a wildfire. So there was a wildfire, the orchid appears, and then fire is suppressed for the next 18 years and it blinks out. And then we bring fire back on the landscape and boom, the orchid reappears. And who knows what it is? You know, it could be the light to the ground. It could be the heat pulse generating mm. uh, germination. It could be that nitrogen flush. It could be a chemical reaction in the smoke. There's so much going on. But we'll, I, I think we may never really know entirely what is going on behind the scenes. You know, maybe it's the mycorrhizal fungi. Who knows what it is? Yeah. But what we know is when we bring fire back, good things happen. The plants respond, the animal respond, the landscape responds. Um, so whatever's going on there, while we've got a sense for what many of these factors are, we, we know that it's, it's, it's heading in the right direction ecologically. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And you're right. I mean, there's so many things we, we still continue to just not even have 
a, even a, a tiniest bit of graphs going on in our, our ecological world. But I'm, I'd love to know a little bit more about, um, we have it here in our notes, but you just kind of talked a little bit about it, which is, you know, what we, we call a fire adapted species continuum, meaning, you know, what is the relationship, I would say, with natural life and this sort of, um, and when I say natural life, I mean, specifically, probably plants and animals, like, what is the relationship with with certain plants and animals and you know this need for regeneration i mean like wh- why is it needed i suppose yeah so it's a really cool story i think if if you look at it as a story or or the way different plants respond not just respond to fire but can actually shape fire so the way if you look at it as a continuum you can look at say at the far left end you've got species that are fire dependent, they must have fire or they will disappear. Okay. Um, And there's many of these are trees, such as some pines that are serotonous. The cones are serotonous. And what that means is they're glued shut with sap. And they'll often only open after being exposed to a fire, which is a terrific adaptation because after a fire, a lot of the competing vegetation is gone. The ground is dark, so it's going to absorb more solar radiation. So it's the perfect environment for a seed to fall. You've just had that nitrogen flush. So so it's a great adaptation to have in a system in which you've got regular fire. And an example of this is Table Mountain Pine, which is a tree that's endemic to the central and southern Appalachians. And that means it won't occur anywhere else in the world. Okay. And what's happening is since we've removed fire from the system, this tree will disappear unless we bring back fire or, or wildfires uh, uh, occur. So that's your far extreme sure. left of the, and then you've got fire adapted trees or fire facilitator trees like oaks and some, uh, some of the yellow pines and they have all sorts of adaptations. They have really thick, chunky bark. So they're insulated from the fire and deep, deep roots. So that if there is a fire, um, most of the, much of the tree is protected and they're also really drought resistant. And then the leaves themselves, the leaves of an oak tree, when they fall, uh, they curl up. So when they stack together on the ground, they're creating this fluffy, dry substrate so that when a fire comes through, those dry, crunchy oak leaves are just going to pull that fire across. And then at the far right extreme, you've got fire in peter trees or fire intolerant trees like like red maple or some sweet gums. They have really thin, smooth bark. So when a fire comes through an area, it's probably going to kill that tree. And these trees like it really, really wet. Um, But what happens is when the leaves from these trees fall on the ground, they're really, really flat. So there's just a little bit of moisture. It's going to get trapped between those leaves. And over time, they create a wet mat around them. So now when a fire moves through the landscape and it hits one of these fire impeder trees and those wet mats, the fire's going to go out. So these trees are actually creating a wet area around them. They're making the landscape wetter or more mesic. And we call this the mesification of the landscape of the forest. And the whole system's becoming wetter. But what's going to happen is with climate change, we know that we're going to get longer periods of extended drought. So if we're losing our fire-dependent or fire-adapted trees that are so drought-tolerant and we're getting more of these water-loving, these mesic trees, over time when we get these, these 
these droughts, the entire forest will be more stressed, more susceptible to, to insect disease, other kind of stressors, and it'll be less resilient and less ready to handle the, the stressors of climate change. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that is such an important, I think, point to really emphasize, which is how species adapt and how that makes them more resilient. Um, because you're right. I mean, there's the whole conversation that we're having, which is, you know, trying to prescribe burns in order to, you know, make, you know, continue the um, ecological diversity. But then of course, there's also the other piece, which we haven't talked about, which is wildfires and the fact that like these continue to happen more and more often. And I'm sure part of you as somebody who, you know, likes to prescribe burns probably likes that there's occasional wildfires. You probably don't like them on the scale um, that they happen at. Right. And so, you know, I think that viewing this, process that you're doing as a way to help some species prepare is really fascinating to me. Yeah, that's really well put is helping species prepare. That's exactly right. And yes, I do think historically the wildfires that we had were a really good thing. The problem we're having today though is we've had so many years of fire suppression and there's so much fuel building yeah. up in these forests and the trees are so close together, way closer than they should be, is that when we do have these fires now, they're these mega fires and they're just so hot that they can actually sterilize the soil and the trees crown, they burn from bottom all the way up to the top, which is not a natural scenario. Mm. So yes, in the right place, I do appreciate a wildfire. And you know, some of the best wildfires I've seen are wildfires that go through an area that has undergone a prescribed fire, because in those areas, the fuels are more natural. They're more at a, a, um, a baseline where really historically they should have been. So there's less fuel. So when a fire sweeps through an area that has been burning, it's a fast fire. It's a light fire. It's a fire that you could almost step over. Ah, um, okay. And those are the really regenerative fires. Okay. So that's really interesting. So you're basically saying that, yes, in areas where we've just not allowed any burning to happen, we end up with a lot of fuel, which accelerates things that, you know, gets us to basically have unnatural patterns of burns, which then kind of have a compounding type, um, you know, situation where stuff gets worse and worse, harder to put out, et cetera. So um, what you're saying is, you know, in areas where burns have been allowed to happen, um, you know, it, it ends up being a much more controlled situation. So I'm curious though, okay, so here, here's a, here's a brain teaser. If somebody gave you access to a place that hasn't been allowed to burn, how would you make it controlled and not spiral out of control? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. That's the that's one that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. So we would call that a first entry burn. Okay. And what we'll do is we'll when we're ready to to burn, we literally write a prescription. It's a plan that says exactly what we're going to do, where we're going to burn, what wind direction we want 
what relative humidity we want. Um, and if it's a first entry burn, you know, we might do it on a day that maybe it just rained a couple of days ago. So it's still a little bit damp. Okay. We'll, we'll prescribe a fire that's going to be really light and maybe it's just going to burn off that top layer. One of the trickiest parts of a, a first entry burn is sometimes you've got really big, mature trees. Um, and when you haven't had a fire in a long time, that duff layer, all those leaves and that um, hummusy layer is going to build up. And those big trees might send little tiny feeder roots up into that duff layer. So if your first burn is hot, you're going to kill those sensitive little roots and you Mm -hmm. might actually kill the trees you're working so hard to protect. So that first entry burn is going to be light. The focus is on just getting that first layer off some of those, you know, a bit, a few of those bigger fuels, but then it's the second entry burn. Once you've already done that initial burn that you can start making it a little bit hotter a little bit more intense. And then that's when you really start to see your positive fire effects. That's so interesting. Um, and, you know, you you touched a little bit on on this in, in that answer, but I'm also curious to know, you know, what about, we, we have, you know, I'm sure many, many, many animal lovers, including yourself on, on this, uh, that listen to this podcast. And so what happens to the animals? Like, do they just run away? Like, how, how do they adapt, um, you know, during these these fire situations? Yeah, great question. So addressing the runaway, a lot of animals are attracted to the fire. What's really? so fascinating. Mm. Yeah, once you generate that smoke column, within minutes, you will start to see raptors circling that column because they know that the rodents are going to start scurrying out mm. and they're ready. They have evolved to search for those smoke columns. So the birds are happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the rodents are pretty good at, at, at scurrying out. Um, although we do, when we're doing a burn, our goal is to have a mosaic. We don't want to just blacken everything. You know, mm-hmm. we'll have some wet pockets. We'll have some areas that we're not going to focus on. So there's always little refugia where where animals can, can move to. Um, but we're also careful about timing. Like we know that burning is really good for bat habitat. Okay. And it creates snags. It creates dead trees with bark that's kind of starting to peel off. And and bats love to roost in there and rear their young. It's it's really protected. It gets a lot of nice solar radiation on it. Um, but that's in June. That's early summer. So we don't burn during periods that we know, say, that the, the bats are, are roosting, are rearing their young. So timing has a lot to do with it, too, because we know that we don't have quite as many of these refugia as historically we would have on the landscape. So it can get tricky if you've got a few rare species and they don't have quite as many places to go. Then we might tailor the timing just for those uh, species. But otherwise, you know, the deer, the 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 other animals, they they really know what to do. They're a lot of the reptiles, the turtles, they'll kind of burrow down into the soil. And you don't have to go very far down into the soil to be completely insulated from the fire. Again, these are fast, uh, relatively light burns that we do. So okay. it's pretty impressive, but they can, they know what they're doing. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and, you know, for, from my perspective, I think 
it, the reason, one of the many reasons why this topic is so interesting is because it's really counterintuitive. I mean, people think about fire equals bad equals everything gets burned up and every, and you know, um, every, nothing is left in its wake. And what you're talking about is just a completely different type of fire, right? This is something that is a natural, um, you know, hopefully a natural occurring, um, you know, uh, situation. And, you know, since we've, we've put a, stop to it, you've kind of got to go back in and recreate it. Um, so curious to know, like kind of once, I mean, and we're, I guess we'll have to use a, a pun here, but once the smoke settles, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, <laughs> how long after that does this regeneration process, like, does it start immediately? I would think so, but I'm curious. Yeah, it starts incredibly fast. Yeah. You get this amazing resurgence of green, just sometimes days, but often weeks and certainly months after the burn, as as the plants respond to that fire, you'll get germination of wildflowers, you'll get um, grasses coming back up so incredibly quickly. It's, it's exciting. There's nothing better than to come back to an area that you've burned, say, three months afterwards. And that's when you get this, this green, like no other green, um, that that's the, the, the plants just responding to, to all of those elements that, that we've created from the fire. So it's, it's really something, you know, you, you watch on the news, these wildfires that we talked about, and you just see these blackened landscapes, but that's not what we see after a controlled burn. We really see this lush, resurgence of growth and, and the health just comes through. It, it's, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> oh, that, I loved, I love to hear about it. <laughs> well, um, so I'm curious to know a little bit more since we are talking about women's history month and, um, want to talk even more about women in fire. And I, I, so when we originally chatted with the nature conservancy, this was an opportunity for us to shine a light more on this initiative. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about the women in fire training exchange and really why it's important um, that women become more involved in, um, you know, in fire. Yeah, that's a great question. So it's a really exciting um, thing that, that has begun. Um, what's frustrating is um, in the United States alone, 84% of the federal wildland fire workforce is male. So it's, it's very difficult um in order to be recognized as part of the crew or to be seen in a leadership role if you're a woman. And that that is changing largely because of initiatives such as WTREX or the Women in Treks. And, and what that's doing is it, it's, it's offering opportunities. So these are, just to back up, these training exchanges are intensive two-week trainings that combine live fire experiences with with indoor learning. And the Nature Conservancy has been putting these together for years, but only in the past few years have they been having training exchanges focused specifically for women. And it really gives them a safe environment to work together to do the work they love, which is you know, restoring landscapes with fire, but in, in a way where they can collaborate together. And and that way we can encourage more women to enter this field, which historically has been dominated um, by men. But we can change that by, by giving women the knowledge and, and the power and um, the learning to, to move up in the fire world uh, on their own. Um, and, 
and I, I really think that moving forward, increasingly, we're going to see more and more women in, in this field. You know, with Nature Conservancy and with, with restoration, we talk so much about diversity and the importance of diversity. Mm-hmm. We need diversity as well in fire management, in having more women, having more people of color, um, having all of these different perspectives in 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 the fire world in decision making and in problem solving the more diversity we get um the better that we're going to get all all around i think in in managing our our natural areas I, I couldn't agree more and i i think it's really interesting to uh you know think about the, the diversity in this workforce i mean i didn't even first of all i didn't even know there was such a thing i mean if you told me you know, what, what, what is a job that one can do around fire? I just say, oh, well, you go be a firefighter, right? Like I I wasn't even aware that your, uh, your career existed. So hopefully some people hear this and think, wow, like, you know, like we said, be having a career that centers around the environment, um, is not just, you know, um, for your, uh, folks that work directly with animals, et cetera. So I think, um, it's, it's a really interesting place to shine a light on. Um, and so speaking of, you know, more diverse folks being involved in different initiatives. I'm curious to know a little bit more about how women um, and, and folks of underrepresented backgrounds can get more involved with organizations like the Nature Conservancy um, or you know similar type organizations. Yeah, that's a great question. So we do have quite a few initiatives trying to make our landscape more more diverse, more women, more minorities. Um, involving indigenous communities. So you can go to nature.org and and you'll find lots and lots of information on 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 things people can do, groups that they can join. And I I strongly encourage women to 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 reach out to agencies that you're interested in and and volunteer. Be part of of the work. Get your hands dirty, you know, Go on hikes, join work days, and and get to know the people in these fields. And I really think that that's the best thing for you, so that you can really first figure out if you really like what you're doing, and and have people really start to know you. But at the same time, have more people like you integrated into the workforce. And I I think that's what we need more of. And I and sometimes it's hard to make that first step. Absolutely, um, you're right. You're right. I think when we're I mean, look, I feel like everybody is trying to find different ways to be involved in their communities more. I mean, there are just, for so many reasons, in addition to us all being cooped up without each other for a long time during the pandemic. <laughs> and so I can't think of a better way to, um, you know, get more involved from a, from a natural perspective. Um, and as a matter of fact, like, I'm based in Washington, I'm sure at Washington State, I'm sure there's plenty of this going on. I'm curious to check out what's going on in my backyard as well. Um, well, you know, it's been so fascinating to learn about this topic from you, Deborah, and I'm sure we could talk much longer about it. I say that with every guest, but it's, you know, it, it's it's so, we, we like to take that, that surface level approach, but perhaps in the future we can talk even more detailed. Um, but, you know, rounding out our conversation, we typically like to ask our guests the same question, which is, you know, you you feel free to answer from your personal perspective or professional or both. But the question really is, um, you know, what is exciting you the most about the ethical and sustainable movement um, from where you're sitting right now? What excites me is how 
how every day it's more common. People understand what you're talking about. They don't see you as just a crunchy granola wackadoo. They get it. Yeah. They understand the importance and they care. And and the more people that 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 say, yes, I get you. I hear you. Me too. The more empowering it is and, 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 and makes me hopeful that, that we're, we're really heading in the right direction. I, I totally agree. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, good together listeners. We will have links to all of the um, initiatives and things like we talked about. Um, we'll have those links available in our show notes at brightly.eco. Um, and, you know, I encourage you listeners to think more about, um, you know, environmental career paths, if you're interested in that, or even just thinking about different ways to expose some of the work that folks are doing in this space, um, specifically, I think women, and of course, underrepresented folks as well, as we, as we round out Women's History Month. But thank you so much for joining us, Deborah. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together. So have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.